0: This episode of The Way Home Podcast is brought to you by Christ-Centered Parenting, a six-week video curriculum from ERLC and LifeWay. For more information, visit LifeWay.com. How should Christians think biblically and engage the world around us? Today, there's several competing models of ways to engage the world. Some are suggesting that because Christians have often done this wrong, that perhaps we should just withdraw into our communities and not really be active on the issues that affect our world. Other people have suggested that we need to return to the glory days of a time in America when things seem to be perfect and rosy. And then there's just other competing ways to engage the world. Today on the podcast, I have my friend John Stone Street, who's president of the Colson Center. Uh, The Colson Center was founded by the late Chuck Colson and uh, really helps equip Christians to think biblically about the world that we live in. I appreciate John because he, like me, agrees with the idea that Christians should engage the world because we love our neighbors. And if we care about the flourishing of our neighbors and we have voice and we have resources and we have agency, then we should speak up for those who, uh, whose voices have been silenced or who do not have a, a big voice in the culture. But John comes and helps us uh, think through what that means, how Christians can avoid the kind of political tribalism that has us choosing between issues on the left and issues on the right, and really talks about his important book, A Practical Guide to Culture, and how families and churches and communities can really live on mission for God in this world. I think you'll really enjoy this conversation with John Stone Street. John, thanks for joining us, man.
1: Oh, happy to, Dan. Thanks so much for having me on.
0: So I want to talk about your book, a practical guide to culture, but before we do that, for people who don't know John Stone Street, which I can't imagine there's any people like that out there. <laughs> there's probably a handful, man. <laughs> let's just pretend that there are those people out there. Maybe talk a little bit about yourself. Obviously, we know that you run the the Colson Center there, but maybe talk a little bit about your pathway into talking about worldview and talking about apologetics.
1: Yeah, you know, I actually grew up in a in a Christian home, but it wasn't one that was very theologically robust. Um, uh, the, the the church and the, you know the kind of the Christian school in which I grew up in, you know, kind of they were great. I had some great mentors, great friends, things like that, but not really uh, something, not, not really a place that took culture in particular seriously, uh, other than to condemn it. And so uh, going off to college and having a worldview class, it was like a a second salvation for me. I mean, just being able to think about faith uh, in a way that applies to the world, not just denies the world, that we can actually make sense of the culture, that we can look through the eyes of our faith at every aspect of culture. Uh, You know, that was just a big part of my... um, uh, of discipleship for me. And then, you know, started working with Summit Ministries. Summit's a terrific organization mm-hmm. out of Colorado Springs. They, they help college and high school students uh, think about these things before they go off to college, especially if they're going off to secular universities. Mm-hmm. So that was a great part of uh, my career. But then along the way, just met Chuck Colson. And, you know, Chuck, gosh, larger than life, a yeah. uh, huge figure in helping the church think about culture and think about it clearly and advancing yeah. this idea of worldview. And uh, so really about two years before he passed away, I uh, came on board with the Colson Center. Uh, and then uh, when he passed away, took over Breakpoint with uh, Eric Metaxas. And then since then, uh, the Colson Center has become a separate organization from Prison Fellowship. Uh, and the most important thing, Dan, which we're all interested in, uh, is uh, I am a uh, husband uh, of Sarah. We've been married 15 years hmm. and uh, four kids. So we're... Uh, we're doing our part, man, four kids. We
0: have a lot in common. I've also been married 15 years, and I also have four children, so.
1: Is that right? Yeah. Do you have a surprise, like, after 15? Because that's what happened to us. We had yeah. three daughters, 12, 10, and 8, who prayed for six years for a little brother. And last year, God, like, yeah. answered their prayer. So we that's, have a little brother out of nowhere. That's pretty cool. That's pretty It is pretty cool, yeah.
0: So you got to spend time with Chuck Colson up close. You know, I heard right. um, Michael Gerson say recently that Colson might be one of the greatest... Social reformers of the 20th century, you know, mm-hmm. just in, in, in the way that he really made the church care about people in prison, and, mm-hmm. and, and not just that, but really was a, helped us really think about worldview and think about ideas.
1: Well, that's really his journey. I mean, you know, obviously he was part of the Nixon administration, um, got caught up in Watergate stuff, came to Christ before. It really heated up, but then uh, went right to prison. And basically that was his discipleship was in prison and came out and started prison fellowship. Um, and, And just, he did. He just really he just really cared for those who were incarcerated. And this was at the same time that the prison population in the United States was exploding, uh, you know, for all kinds of reasons. But along the way, too, he started to ask a question not just how can I start more and more Bible studies in prisons and help more and more children at Christmas time of, of those who are incarcerated, but why is this happening? What's breaking in culture upstream that's leading to what we see downstream in the prisons? And then also, where's the church? I mean, he was a huge, huge fan of Abraham Kuyper, who thought theologically about the integration of faith and culture and as- specific aspects of culture. Mm-hmm. Obviously, a huge fan also of William Wilberforce um, and uh, the guy who actually put it into action. And Chuck was, you know, he was a thinker and a doer, which mm-hmm. they don't always go together, but you can easily say that about
0: Chuck. You know, I've heard people say, uh, that it would be awesome if we had a Chuck Colson alive today. You just you know what would he be saying about the the state of the world and in those things? I imagine it was pretty formative to spend some time, spend some years with him, uh, and it kind of shaping your own heart and mind.
1: Well, it was, and you know, it's. It's. I I get no shortage of emails from people who are quite certain what Chuck would say today, and who are who are quite certain what I think Chuck would would say today isn't right, Um, and especially in the political space. But here's something I think at least instructive for us, Dan, is that the last major project he did was on on ethics, uh, virtue, Mm. and character. Um, He was a a big believer, having been in the White House, that you can have great ideas. And those ideas and policies really matter, um, but character matters, too. Mm. And character matters on our side and on their side, uh, Mm -hmm. quote unquote. And so I I, I think um, he would have been um, uh, very Vocal about what's happening uh, in, in the political space, uh, he would have been calling people to consistency and integrity, um, and so that that that's my take. We've written about that on Breakpoint a couple times, uh, especially you know after the election um, and and also before the election when you know the, we had the two candidates that we we had. Uh, Chuck often quoted Alexander Solzhenitsyn's speech at Harvard, uh, the graduation speech, in which he said that the mark of a decaying society. Uh, is, it, well, several things he listed, but one of those was a lack of great statesmen. And I, I, I think Chuck would have pointed to that and said, look, you got to vote. You got to do what you got to do uh, in terms of policy and the, the least of, you know, least evils and so on. Um, but at the same time. He, he would have said, don't put your hope in politics, that the church, not the state, uh, is ultimately responsible for the virtue of society to help the poor, uh, to take care of the, uh, the broken. Uh, and uh, so, so Chuck, Chuck fought to be consistent, especially after his lesson in the White House. Uh, he didn't believe in an ends justify the means sort of way of, of, of doing things, even though he was very practical and pragmatic, you know, when it was appropriate. So it would it would be interesting. Um, I I think, and many do, Dan, that God protects certain individuals mm-hmm. from, from certain times. Yes. Uh, you know, one thinks of T. S. Eliot's writing on culture and information and technology, and thinks, well, if we put T. S. Eliot in the middle of Times Square right now, his head would just explode, and it'd all be over in a hurry. Yeah.
0: Um,
1: and I think I think God actually, you know, determines those times and places. For us.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, and I think people have really enjoyed uh, the work that uh, you've done through Breakpoint, through the Colson Center, and the Wilberforce stuff that you're doing, kind of sort of training the next generation how to think well. And um, you have this book out called The Practical Guide to Culture. Do you want to explain a little bit your purpose in, in writing that book and, and, and helping people uh, think? Yeah. Look, if
1: you ask me why I jumped into this project, I'll tell you I have four reasons. If you ask my co-author, Brett Kunkel, why he wrote it, he'd say he has five reasons. My four reasons are my four kids, his five reasons are his five Mm. kids. I mean, look, Dan, you're a dad too. We all sense that something dramatic has changed Mm -hmm. in our cultural moment. Uh, We kind of are are stunned at the speed at which things went from being unthinkable to unquestionable. Mm -hmm. And um, you know, it's one thing when... Faith and uh, positions of Christian conscience are thought of as quaint, outdated, and wrong. It's another thing when they're thought of as intoler- uh, you know, intolerable and evil. And so here we are as parents trying to help the next generation navigate this culture. And that's really what drove us, is that this book was really written for people like me. <laughs> I wrote it for myself, honestly, mm-hmm. uh, along with Brett. Um in a time of great cultural upheaval, a lot of parents, uh, youth pastors, people that are invested in the next generation just feel lost. How do we talk about these things that are happening? I mean, from opioid abuse to suicide and self harm to all the LGBT related issues, um, you know, to glowing screens and rectangles everywhere, distracting our attention from things that are eternally insignificant. I mean, it's just one thing after another. And uh, we wanted to help have a what the title says a practical guide. Here Mm. are the issues, and here's the most practical way you can help your kid navigate them. Because look, the other option is 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 not an option, which is we'll just send them out into the culture and see how Mm. they do. Uh, In this particular cultural moment, that's as bad. You know, that's just not an option for people of faith.
0: Yeah, and it, it does seem you know as a parent, I'm more acutely aware of this that just of the need to be to bring back an old theological term, but we need to be catechizing our children. Um, right. And as parents, uh, teaching them, you know, what what the Bible says, uh, how to think about various issues that they're gonna face in the culture, and just give them that solid foundation. It, it does seem like, and, and one thing I love about the work that you're doing is that you're not necessarily saying, we need to go back to some mythical golden era where everything was great in the, in America, you know? 1950s or whatever which you hear a lot from from people who care about worldview or or people who uh, are are conservative types and explain that a little bit like why really thinking well doesn't necessarily mean you know yearning for this this time that everything seemed to be just perfect.
1: Well, you know, I, th- I think for a couple things we need to keep in mind. Number one is, is that uh, for, for the Christian, and this is something that um, Chuck Colson said, he, he often quoted uh, Richard John Newhouse, the founder of First Things, in this line that despair is a sin. Um, hope is not an option for the Christian. Um, hope, uh, according to at least Peter's first epistle, is commanded, uh, and that it's completely rational because it's grounded in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and this resurrection is not a matter of personal truth it's a matter of, of public cosmic truth and so therefore just like you know Paul writes the book of joy from a prison Peter writes the book of Hope to a group of Christians that are headed in the Nero's persecution and it's not up in the air because of the resurrected Christ the the second thing is there's this need that we have uh, every generation if we believe the scripture if we take the scripture uh, as it's given to us, as the grand story of all things. Our cultural moment is serious, but it's just a moment. The story doesn't change. Uh, We have to understand our moment from the story, and we know the story, creation, fall, redemption, restoration. We can't rethink the story, even though I think that's what a lot of people do. I think some people stand in the moment and say things like, all is lost for the church. That's never true because Christ is risen. Or we stand in the moment, and we think, oh, we've gotta change our mind or we'll be irrelevant to Mm -hmm. the moment. Um, No, Uh, and and then the the final thing that I think, and this is probably the clearest scripturally, Mm -hmm. is what Paul says to the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers in Athens in Acts chapter 17. And he says a lot of things there about who God is, but one of the things he says is, God determines the times and places in which we live. In other words, God wants our kids in this cultural moment. He doesn't want them in some old, good old days, whenever those were, he he wants us in this cultural moment, and uh, the the same thing that he asked of us, you know, love, joy, peace, long suffering, uh, to be you know agents of reconciliation. All of these things apply to this moment to this group of people that are in Christ. So, uh, go- going back to some good old days is 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 just not an option, really. For uh, at least according to the scriptures,
0: and really, you know, Christians are not the people who look backward but forward. Right? We're we're looking right. for that city whose builder and maker is God, and I do think, too, it's easy for particularly white evangelicals to think the 50s were great. Right. <laughs> we, yeah, exactly. If we ask our minority brothers and sisters in Christ, like, do you want to go back to the 1950s? I guarantee you they, they don't want to go back there because they are more free. And, uh, you know, even though we have some deep pockets of racism and, and issues in this country, we're in a better place uh, than we weren't back in those days. So I think it's interesting that. You know, and obviously, if we have a good theology of um, of sin, we know that every generation is 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 cursed by the fall. So,
1: well, that's that's so instructive because I think a lot of Christian communities, you know, they want to go back to some time when you know the world was quote unquote less fallen, um, and um, or they want to create a community of safety, right? So that one approach to the culture is to build really high walls. And to, you know, I kind of joke that, you know, these are the, you know, if the girls have uh, long skirts and the boys have short hair, you know, all will be well sort of culture, you know, communities. And there's no such thing as keeping the fall out. There's no such thing since the garden of being in a world somehow less fallen. And so theologically, we're given, I think, very helpful categories uh, that have to kind of build our foundation to even start thinking well about culture to begin with.
0: And one of the things I... I like that you've spent a lot of time on is just, you know, how we're being formed. And I think consciously or subconsciously we're all being formed, and it seems today more than ever we're so tribalized, right? That we're we're kind of formed by our tribes that we self-select and put ourselves into. Do you do you want to speak about that and 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 how Christians can sort of break out of that? Uh, yeah,
1: it, it, that's one of the things we have to understand about culture is what culture does to us, um, and, and that's one of the places I really appreciate Rod Dreher. I, I don't agree fully with the Benedict option. I keep telling him the right one is the Bene Kuyper option. Uh, <laughs> <I love that. laughs> yeah, well, because I don't think we're we're, we're freed from the, the Kuyperian impulse to try to reform and restore culture, but on the flip side, we need to take really seriously, and this is what Rod does, I think, really well, is how culture is shaping us and forming us, uh, In our book, we talk about culture as water. There's an old Chinese proverb that says, if you want to know what water is, don't ask the fish. Uh, Because fish don't know they're wet. They just don't know anything else. And we don't know life outside of our culture. It's really hard to... Kind of intentionally step away and look at it critically, which is what we tried to do in the book. And 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 there are you know two aspects of water too. We talk about in in the end of the book these cultural waves, these kind of pounding waves of culture. If you get hit by a wave at the beach, you know it, right? You you, you know you, you got wet. You know it. You got knocked down. But you've also had that experience probably down like I have, which is playing in the water with my kids, looking up, and we're thirty yards down from our towel. Um, and we're like, how did we get all the way down here? We, you know, I don't remember getting down here. That's the undercurrents, and we have a whole section there on four undercurrents and how they're shaping us, how they're catechizing us. This, these are really big undercurrents that have dramatically changed in our cultural moment. And uh, you know, one for example is just the mass amount of information and how that affects our understanding of what it means to to learn and to know. Uh, the access to information, for example, has replaced. Our notions of wisdom, and, and and so you have the 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 crisis of authority from pastor to peer to professor to parent to Google search results, because we live in a culture of so much information. Uh, we also just have distraction, glowing rectangles everywhere. Uh, Neil Postman, who wrote "Amusing Ourselves to Death," he's another one of those guys. I think God is spared. You know, if he landed in today's culture, he wouldn't know what to do. And he wrote back in 1985 about how much we had become an entertainment-driven culture. The worship of adolescence, I think that's another one. Uh, We're a culture that never wants to grow up. You could call us a Peter Pan culture. You know, Dan, when you and I were growing up in the 80s, right, I mean, all the knuckleheads in the movies were in high school. And then they all went to college when we went to college, and now the knuckleheads in the movies are married with kids, men and women. So we, you know, that's a big deal. It's a big difference between a culture that seeks and strives for age and wisdom and that one that always stays. Is young forever, mm-hmm. and then the final one is one that I know that you've written on as well. And I think uh, Peter Berger called it. Uh, I think said it well. We have a culture of a perpetual identity crisis. Mm-hmm. So the tools, the institutions that used to help us frame our identity, mm-hmm. have been comp- have been, really lost their power. And so identity now is an up for grabs concept in culture, and that's a really disrupting thing. When you you know you say, "Hey, kid, become a Christian." if they don't know what it means to be a human, what does it mean to be a Christian? right? Mm-hmm. It's it's really hard to get from point A to B if you don't know where A is. And so anyway, those are some of the ways that I think cultures catechize this. We could go deep on each of those
0: things. It does seem like there's a fresh opportunity for faithful Christians to press the Christian story into this such, such a confused oh. world. I mean, that last one you mentioned just about what does it mean to be human, I think there's more questions about that today than really at any time. Like, you know, the the rich and robust vision for humanity that the Bible has, to many may be a relief for those seeking refuge from from everything else they've tried, you know?
1: Oh, listen, it's so true. Uh, um, I mean, if you think about all the just the sexual issues, right? Um, and we, we have a tendency, I think, as older evangelicals to look at the LGBT um, movement as primarily a moral movement, uh, a moral slide. Things that were once considered right are now considered wrong, and vice versa. And I never want to get away from talking about those things and the moral dimensions of, of sexual behavior because they absolutely are moral slides. But what we try to point out in the book is those those shifts, as well as others. That, that's the fruit of a deeper shift. The moral slide is, is the reflection culturally of a deeper shift in what it means to be human and losing that sense of human dignity and human value. Um, and you know, really Ju-Jude- the Judeo-Christian framework. You can you can talk to you know, Frederick Nietzsche wrote about this. Uh, Luke Ferry, the atheist professor at the University of Paris, said the whole concept of human dignity mm-hmm. owes itself to the Judeo-Christian mm-hmm. framework. You don't have Christianity, you don't have human dignity. Now, in our culture, we want human dignity, but we don't want that Christian underpinning, and so we're tethering it to sexual orientation, gender identity, and really self-autonomy, like, who am I in the world? I get to decide. But that's a really fragile sense of self, um, and so I honestly, I, I think, and, and here's the other thing, Dan, you work with a lot of churches, we both know, you could, we could go from church to church to church and say, hey, everybody, fill in the blank, humans are made, and everyone would say together, in the image of God. Right. So it's, it's a thing we know, but then you say, well, wait a minute, what does that even mean? What is mm-hmm. the image of God? What difference does it make? Uh, that is a lost theological concept, much less a lost worldview concept. To me, that's as critical as it gets for parents, youth pastors, teachers to pour into the next generation is mm. a clear understanding of image of God.
0: Yeah, and I, I would argue, of course, you know, wrote a book on it and I'm probably biased on this, but I would argue that it is the definitive cause of our time, you know, Clearly. what does yes, it mean absolutely. to be human, how do, both how we look at ourselves, how we see ourselves, but also how we see others, which is why I think I like what you're doing in the Practical Guide to Culture and kind of in in, in the Colson Center is that you're, you know, it seems like you're borrowing the best of what Rod Dreher has in the Benedict Option and that we need, do need to shore up our institutions and catechize our, our children. But then also we have to be outward-looking because you know if we do love our na- if if we are to love our neighbors as ourselves and we have an opportunity to shape the culture and shape the environment in which our neighbor lives i don't think we can be silent if we have a voice if we have opportunity right
1: right no that's that's exactly right and uh, you know we're told to love our neighbor and our neighbor is um, uh, you know, that kid in our kids, you know, that kid in our child's class who, you know, identifies as transgender, is, you know, and that kid who identifies as, uh, uh, you know, gay or lesbian, you know, that 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 childhood friend. I mean, we can't choose a different culture to live in. And it's hard. I, I get mad. I mean, look, I have three daughters. So when Disney, for example, uh, you know, have, have, have done these really... Kind of, you know, th- thematically or, or in terms of cinematography, these excellent real life adaptations of these classic fairy tales: mm. Cinderella, Beauty and the Beast. Man, I felt completely set up by Beauty and the Beast. I don't know if you did or not, but I mean, they they've been marketing this thing like geniuses for two years, and then two months before it releases, they then say, "Hey, we have a gay moment," uh, you know. After our girls have been excited about it for two years, and and so here, what do you do? Well, you you choose to say, okay, my kid's not ready for that, or you choose to say, you know, we we have to have this conversation, and there's a gay moment in here. I'm not going to let them miss it because if they miss it, then they're going to think that something is normal. And that's where culture is most powerful. That's the decision, by the way, we made. I'm not saying everybody should have made that decision, but we just said, look, I don't want our kids to miss this moment because if they miss this moment, it'll come across as normal. And I don't want it to come across as normal. That's where culture is its most powerful, not where it's the loudest, but where it's the most subtle. It's not where it it makes an argument, as C.S. Lewis once said, it's where it makes an assumption. Mm. It's where it just portrays things as normal. And uh, like it or not, th- th- you know, these ideas that are embedded in our culture, we've got to address. And if we love our neighbor, we, we often say around the Colson Center, Dan, that ideas have consequences and bad ideas have victims. Now, you know, we can't take credit for the first one. That's Robert Weaver. But, but we add bad ideas have victims because bad consequences, they're not just kind of esoteric consequences like in a logical formula. They actually impact real lives. And if we care about our neighbors, if we are to love our neighbors, we have to care about those ideas embedded in culture that are making victims of them. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, that's why I still have that outward posture um, that, that we do at the Colson Center.
0: And it seems that increasingly Christians can't just rely on the tribe we find ourselves in. Uh, right. Because we, too, will start normalizing things that are perhaps contrary to Scripture. So, you know, if, if we're just relying on I'm a conservative and, you know, I'm just going to sort of follow the, my favorite conservative pundits, that'll shape me in a way that must be biblical. Or vice versa, you know, if if you're more progressive-leaning and you're saying I can just rely on sort of, you know, the progressives that agree with me. It's amazing to me to see on both sides people who get involved in activism who start with good intentions and then end up being carried along by that tribe into positions that are you know, deeply unbiblical. How do, we, how do we sort of fight that, that uh, pull toward tribalism and, and really have a well-formed worldview?
1: Well, you know that's another irony of the culture, and uh, is that tribalism is all that's left for identification. So um, that that's why it's such a strong pull on all of us is that we're swimming in the same cultural waters, right? So, uh, in a culture that's abandoned solid ground for identity, then you're just kind of left with affinity. Uh, and we see that I, I just had a conversation down in uh, Texas. I was speaking to a group of, of of youth leaders, and a dad came up to me. I'm a big Texas boy, you know. I mean, clearly had a gun on a rack on the back of his truck, right? But just weeping because his ten year old girl had been brought into this new um, uh, kind of affinity app called um, these the Amino apps. There's like a hundred thousand apps that all go to this kind of underground digital Lord of the Flies place where you know it's kind of this unpoliced sexual orientation, suicide talk, you know, uh, eating disorders. And it, it, again, it's tribalism, right? Hey, do you like this? Download this app and come do it. I mean, it, again, I hate to sound like a broken record, but we've gotta get image of God down, and we've gotta mm-hmm. talk about image of God as if it's true. And, and this is even more than talking about something that's become really popular parlance in, um, in church circles, which is our identity is in Christ, our identity is in Christ. Now, you and I would both agree with that, uh, Dan, but but what's missing there is: Do we really know what our identity is in Christ if we have never really thought through what our identity was intended in creation? Mm-hmm.
0: This is Absolutely. one of
1: Abraham. Yeah, this is one of Abraham Kuyper's best insights: is that God's not doing through Christ and redemption what He wasn't doing through Christ in creation, and um, and I think that's the connection we need to make. We talk about uh, our identity being in Christ, and I have a relationship with Christ, and I feel a peace with Christ, and then we pick up a Christian magazine that talks about, you know, Christian women... Becoming surrogates for others because they feel a peace about it. Suddenly, they clearly missed what God intended in the garden for sex, marriage. You see what I mean? So they're they're jumping ahead to this kind of understanding of who they are in the image of Christ without realizing that our bodies matter, who we are matter because of way God intended for us in creation. We, we've got to we've got to lay some of this theological groundwork first of all. The second thing is is I think is keeping straight what we say in the book, keeping straight the story in the moment. And uh, that creation, fall, redemption, restoration mm-hmm. story—I mm-hmm. don't think nearly as many Christians could repeat that as could talk about image of God. But I, I still think, at best, it's a matter of trivia. You know, what do we mean when we say something was created? It's fallen, and Christ, it's redeemed, and uh, one day it will be restored. And where do we live in that storyline? This is discipleship. It's very different, by the way. One of the things we have in the book, uh, Dan, is at the end. We have a section called a Christian worldview kind of toolkit, and these are the non-negotiables you need. And the Mm -hmm. very first chapter, and we Brett and I kind of fought about this because he's an apologist, um, and uh, you know we have a chapter in there about why you can trust the Bible, Mm -hmm. and we also have a chapter in there on how how to read and how not to read the Bible. Mm -hmm. Um, And the reason is is because I think one of the ways that we kind of failed to counter this cultural narrative about who we are is we read the Bible in bits and pieces, right? We look for, as Philip Yancey, I think once called them, moral McNuggets out of this story or out of that verse without seeing that kind of grand creation to new creation narrative that's supposed to frame our reality. And so we work really hard at that in the book too. That's been a big part of our parenting and it's really helped our kids. I think uh, just because we got such good coaching on that at the beginning, helped our kids see the the world in a different sort of way. Instead of just kind of, Bec- being becoming secular kids with Bible verses posted on their head th- that really that they have those Christian glasses that they're seeing the narrative um, through the lens of scripture uh, seeing the the world through the narrative of scripture that that's really what we're after
0: mm, it's really good I want to just close by asking you how you would specifically encourage parents to to really equip their kids to to live on mission for God in this in this age. And, and maybe how you would encourage pastors to kind of equip the people of God to live on yeah. this. Yeah.
1: Well, I, I think it's it's a great point. First of all, obviously, in addition to kind of getting the story down, getting image of God down, I think there are specific tools that we need. What We call in the book antidotes to the major undercurrents of our culture. So, if we live in a culture of way too much information... Uh, discernment has to be a priority in discipleship, and this is actually what Paul prayed for the church at Philippi, that their love would abound more and more in truth and in all discernment. There's a lot more on this in the book, and I don't want to go deep too deep on it, but I, I will say this, um, teaching the truth is not necessarily the same as equipping and cultivating discernment. Um, discernment, I love the definition from a 19th century dictionary that we found. It's the ability to tell the difference between the true and the false and the genuine and the counterfeit, and to prefer the true and the genuine over the false and the counterfeit. So it has to do with thinking and clarifying, and it also has to do with choosing. And I think that's so important in today's culture. Second thing I would say is, in a culture of too many digital screens and glowing rectangles getting in the way of our families and our conversations, you gotta unplug and prioritize relationship. Mm. Um, We are the most connected generation. I mean, right now you and I are having this conversation, you know, it sounds like we're in the same room, but we're in different cities, right? Yeah. I don't know if I was supposed to give that no, away or not, away. but it's I gave it away. But I do the same thing on a weekly basis. Yeah. So we have an amazing ability to connect. And how, if Sherry Turkle, for example, was writing her book Alone Together, we are relationally impoverished. Mm. And the greatest commandment, Dan, is not to trust or to believe; it's to love. Mm. Lo- I mean, love is not an option. So, so relationship discernment. I think uh, the third thing is is we got to challenge this next generation with higher expectations. Um, if we get sucked into this perpetual adolescence then what we're tempted to do is turn youth group into Christian adolescents and uh, to, have, to, to penalize this next generation with low expectations. And I think we look at some of the great leaders throughout history. We look at some of the great figures even in scripture, and they started young, and God had high expectations for them. And we shouldn't expect 13 to 18-year-olds to be idiots for five years, as if that's normal. Um, I think we should uh, bless the next generation with higher expectations. Um, and so anyway, those are three things that I think have to be deeply entrenched in our discipleship process. And in the book, we talk not only about those things, but specifically practical strategies for um, giving them the antidote of discernment for formulating and cultivating and prioritizing relationship and what it means to have high expectations in the area of learning and in the area of character. Uh, so those are two, th- three things we talk about very specifically in the book.
0: Well, John, I appreciate you joining me. This is great stuff. And your book, The Practical Guide to Culture, is really helpful uh, for parents, for educators, Christian schools, pastors that really want to have a roadmap for equipping people. So I encourage people to get it. We'll have a link on our show notes page and, of course... We all know that you can hear John on Breakpoint, and sometimes you're uh, on the World Magazine podcast, World and Everything in It. I know because my wife listens to that every morning, and sometimes I hear you uh, very early. Yeah, the, yeah, that's right. I do in a, the morning, so I do it every Friday, Culture Friday yeah, on the I'm World. Like, and hey, everything there's John in it. Stone Street uh, at <laughs> six o'clock in the morning.
1: So violating your morning, yes, yes sorry exactly. About that. <laughs> but
0: uh, we'll have all the links to where you can hear hear John. But thanks for joining me. I appreciate it, man.
1: Hey, you bet. Thanks so much, Dan.
0: If you're a parent as I am, undoubtedly you're facing questions about how to explain issues like sexuality and gender and technology and race and identity to your kids. It seems like the world in which we're raising our kids has gotten a little bit different than the world in which our parents raised us. How do we tackle these important questions and train up our kids to love Jesus and love the word and to live on mission in their day? Well, the ERLC and Lifeway Christian Resources has teamed together to bring you Christ-centered parenting. This is a unique six-week video curriculum that is specifically designed to help parents, youth pastors, anyone in a position of influence over children to really help answer those difficult questions that our kids have. We brought together experts from around the country, including Bible teacher Jen Wilkin, Pastor Ray Ortland, Dr. Russell Moore, Trillia Newbell, and many others, to sit around a table and to really think through some of these difficult and important questions. It also comes with a very comprehensive study guide that is age-graded for each level of your child's development. So I encourage you to check out Christ-Centered Parenting from ERLC and Lifeway. You can go to lifeway.com or your nearest Lifeway Christian store to purchase your copy today. Thank you for listening to The Way Home Podcast. If you've enjoyed this conversation, please let us know by writing a review on iTunes. You can catch previous episodes on danieldarling.com. The Way Home is produced by Gary Lancaster and scheduling by Marie Delph. The Way Home is a production of the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission of the Southern Baptist Convention.